I'll invite you to remain standing for a reading from the gospel this morning. This morning, our gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. When he looked up, he saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Please be seated. Well, it was almost exactly a year ago that Micah and I got a phone call that we were appointed to Mobile, Alabama. And this was a highly anticipated phone call, not just for us, but for everyone in my graduating class. And we could finally answer the question that everyone seemed to be asking. What's next for you? Where are you going? What will you do after you graduate from Candler? It had been a long time of saying, I don't know yet. I'll let you know when I know. Then finally, about a year ago today, I could say, I am going to Ashland Place United Methodist Church. And not knowing much about this, most of my friends were from other conferences, other states, they would say, well, where is that? And when I said Mobile, there were one or two reactions. People that knew about Mobile would almost, almost every single time they would say, oh, Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras, Mobile, they would associate the two together. And if someone heard that, and didn't associate the two, they would say, what is Mardi Gras? They would have no idea what was going on. And one of the people that was in that camp of not knowing anything about Mardi Gras was my husband Micah, who was from Huntsville. I tried to explain best I could to people who were confused about this, because I grew up across the bay. You know, we went to parades, we had days off of school, I ate moon pies, I ate king cake. You know, I tried to explain, but there's something about Mardi Gras that's kind of hard to explain until you've experienced it. And so, we've tried to experience it together this year, our first season of Mardi Gras here in Mobile. So yesterday, we went to parades, we even went to a bowl yesterday. We ate moon pies, we wore beads, we tried to do all the things we could. And I was surprised at how fun everything was. I was a bit skeptical of the whole, the whole thing, there was just such hype about it. Ever since we've moved here, people have said, Mardi Gras season, it's such a a thing that you can't really explain until you're here. And so again, we had a lot of fun. Mardi Gras has a way of bringing people together, bringing people out of their homes, to come out and experience the community together, this cultural phenomenon. But again, you can't really experience Mardi Gras just anywhere or anytime. If you want to experience the real deal, you have to come to Mobile on specific days, in specific months, a very specific time of the year, only once a year. 
And again, you can read about Mardi Gras, you can look at pictures, you can hear about the parades, but there's something about experiencing it here that makes it feel different. After this week, all the floats will go away, the streets will be cleared, and Mardi Gras will be put to rest until next year, when again, it will happen at a very specific time. Well, on a day that is so unique, as we're right in the middle of Mardi Gras, we gather together to read a very strange text, kind of like the strange cultural phenomenon that is Mardi Gras. And so today, we will look at this text together. Our first clue that this will be a strange story is that it begins on a mountaintop. I don't know if you realize this throughout scripture, but a lot of strange things happen on mountains. And this is not totally random. In the first century ancient Near East, people assumed that we lived in a three-tiered universe. So they knew that we lived in the middle tier, that we were on the earth. And the idea was that above the earth, there was, like above the moon, above the stars, there was a dome of water, kind of like it talks about in the creation account, that there's actually a dome of water above us. And above that is where God is, that the kingdom of God is up above, high up in the clouds. And that below the earth, the bottom tier, is the underworld, where all of the lost souls go if they choose not to be in a relationship with God. And so this was what people assumed. And so we have all these stories in scripture and just in ancient texts of people climbing up to high mountains, high heights, because they're trying to get closer to God, closer to the divine. And so we have stories like Moses encountering the burning bush while on Mount Sinai. Our text this morning is when Moses climbs the same mountain and receives the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. We have a story of Elijah going up on the mountain and encountering God in the sound of sheer silence. And in Genesis, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, of people coming together to build a tower with its tops in the heavens. People wanted to get higher so that they were closer to God. And the truth is, most people no longer believe in this three-tiered universe. We've had centuries of research, scientists studying what is above the stars, and it's more stars, it's more galaxies, it just goes, it's vast. But as far as we know, there's no dome of water up there. And we know that beneath our feet are not souls of people, are not actually people living beneath our feet. It's molten metal, it's lava, it's as hot as the sun. It would be impossible for people to live underneath our feet. But this does pose a question for us. If God is not up there, up above the sky, then where is God? Well, to answer this question, let us begin on the mountaintop, like our people from the story did today, like our disciples. And I've already confessed to you that I find this scripture really strange this morning. And I want you to put on your imagination cap and imagine this with me. Imagine if you were one of the disciples and you had been led up on this mountain with Jesus. So they have trekked up this mountain together. Imagine they're a little out of breath. You know, the air is a little thinner up there. Altitude change. And then, bam! There's no intro. There's no explanation. Jesus just starts glowing. It starts with his face, and then all of his clothes turn to dazzling white. And, you know, they're watching him. He just starts glowing. They're friends. And I'm sure they have a lot of questions. They're not knowing what's going on. And as if that's not strange enough, then appear Moses and Elijah, also on the mountain. And I just have to imagine the disciples are so confused. Their friend is glowing. Two people that are not living have appeared. 
And they're just left to take it all in. We're left wide-eyed wondering what is going on. Well, throughout Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tries to show people, to show us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses. So here we have several allusions to the text we read from Exodus earlier. You might have thought about that as you heard the two scriptures. There are a lot of similarities. When Moses was led up on Mount Sinai, it says that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Just like in our text from Matthew, it says that Jesus was made to shine bright, dazzling white. Both stories also account for a large cloud coming and a voice speaking from within the cloud to the people listening. In the transfiguration, while Jesus is still glowing, this voice from the cloud says, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. These words from the cloud may sound familiar to you because they're almost exactly what the voice from the cloud said when Jesus was baptized. We read that from Matthew earlier in this year, in 2020, when we talked about baptism on the Lord's Sunday. And this is again because Matthew wants the readers to know, without a shadow of a doubt, who Jesus is. And this is why it's again emphasized here. Matthew wants the readers to know that even Moses and Elijah are told to listen to him. Jesus is the Messiah. And so because of all that's happened in this place, Peter suggests that he will make a dwelling there, on top of the mountain, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while we don't know exactly why he wanted to do this, I think we can make some good guesses why he, wanted, why he might want to make a dwelling place. It could be that he wanted to preserve this place by making a temple, where they could come back and worship this, at this place where they had seen God, through the bright light, through the speaking. I mean, it's pretty incredible. So perhaps he wanted to create a temple of sorts, an altar where they could come back and worship. Or perhaps he wanted to mark the spot so that they could come back to not only just around the spot, but they could know exactly where this happened. X marks the spot kind of thing, so they could come back to the spot where Jesus was transfigured. Or maybe he wanted to build a dwelling place so that he could stay there. He could stay in the presence of God for forever. Either way, Peter wanted to mark this spot on the mountain because he had encountered God there. He had experienced the divine on top of the mountain, and because he had done this, he wanted to preserve the moment. And can we really blame him for wanting to hold on to that, to that closeness he felt with God? I can think of several moments in my life when I have felt like Peter. Times when I have encountered God in such a real way that I didn't want to leave the physical, specific place that I was in. One of those places for me is Blue Lake. And I know that that place is also dear to so many of you this morning. For those of you who are not familiar, it is a United Methodist camp in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, outside of Andalusia. And it's named for the big blue lake in the middle that's surrounded by cabins and lots and lots of pine trees. From the outside, there's really nothing fancy about Blue Lake. The cabins are kind of old, the food's just okay. There's no cell phone reception for miles. I mean, you were in the middle of nowhere at this camp. But I began going here in third grade, and it has become sacred ground for me. If only for one week during the summer, everything seemed to slow down when I would go to Blue Lake. 
important things came into focus. Stress and anxiety seemed to diminish because school was momentarily out of my mind. When I went to Blue Lake, I felt free to be present with my friends and with God. And God was no doubt with us in our singing, in our playing, in our swimming, and in our waking and eating toast. And as I've grown older, I've continued going to Blue Lake for a chrysalis walk, helping with Emmaus walks, leading worship for confirmation retreats, and just going there to reconnect with people who have meant so much to me. And each time I'm there, I feel this closeness to God. It feels like I'm actually closer to God. But yet, I know that God is not contained at Blue Lake, because I've also felt God in other places. When I moved to Montgomery for college, I quickly began interning at First Methodist Montgomery. And I don't know if y'all have ever been in that sanctuary, but the first time I walked in, it actually took my breath away. It was so, so beautiful and so huge. I had never been in such a huge sanctuary before. It has columns and huge stained glass windows. And it was just absolutely incredible. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was there, that God was also in Montgomery. And also while I was in college, I went on a couple of mission trips to China. And I'm telling you that one of the most tangible times I have felt God's presence and that I have known God was in the space was in a living room worship experience that I had in China. And it's illegal to be a Christian in China, so these were underground churches. You know, we had to go in one at a time, with waiting with time in between so it didn't look too suspicious for people who were hosting this church. And when we were in the service, all of us from Alabama, from Montgomery and Auburn, we didn't understand a word they said. We didn't know any of the songs they sang. But God was there. God was so present in that living room apartment in China. I would guess that all of us in this room have experienced a mountaintop experience. A time or place when we actually felt physically closer to the realm of God. Closer than we do in our everyday lives. And I've heard several sermons in my life about how we have these mountaintop experiences and then we have to come back down back down away from God, away from that closeness, back to real life. And while I think there is some truth about, we do gain some sustenance from those experiences when we feel so close to God, when we're away from distractions and we're totally focused in, I think there's something to be said about that. But what sticks out to me in the text today is something different. Our scripture from Matthew and my experience of God tells me that God is not only on the mountaintops. God is not only in temples or churches. God is not only the God of this congregation or of this country. God came to show the disciples and to show us today that God is not only around in specific seasons and in specific places. God is not hiding from us up on the mountain waiting for us to come and seek. Our God is not far off. Because God is in all and with all. After Jesus was transfigured and started glowing, and after Moses and Elijah appeared, after the loud voice spoke from the cloud, we see one of the most tender moments in Scripture. The disciples have totally fallen out in fear, and can we blame them for falling in fear in such a sight? And Jesus comes to them and reaches out his hand and touches them and says, Get up! Don't be afraid. And then what do they do? 
They get up and they go down the mountain. They do not linger. They do not build a temple. And Matthew does something that's very unlike Matthew. He doesn't even tell us the name of the mountain they were on. It's like he doesn't want us to focus on the specific place where it happened. He just wanted us to know that it happened. Because God is not only contained on that mountain. And I believe that's one of our biggest takeaways today from this story of the transfiguration. That God is omnipresent. That God is with us at all times and in all spaces. And I believe that this has the power to transform the way we understand Christianity and our role as a church. If God is not contained within the walls of this building, within the walls of this beautiful sanctuary, if God is not only in here, then church becomes a place that we come together seeking to understand God more. It becomes our launching point rather than our end point. We come together to get that nourishment and to get energy to go out and to continue seeking God in the parking lot, in our homes, in our workplaces. Again, it becomes the starting point, not the only point. If God is all around us in creation, how does that change the way we take care of the earth? If God is in all of creation, we will begin to see each tree, each body of water, each flower that we see as a gift. Each animal we see, we will treat with love and respect because everything and all of creation has a piece of the divine. And if we know that God is already present in all other countries, how does that change the way we understand mission trips? Mission trips then become a way to see how God is already at work in other countries, rather than us thinking that we have to bring God to other people. And what a better time to shift our mindset than now, as we're entering into the season of Lent. Next week begins our 40-day journey with Jesus to the cross. And certainly, as we are led into the season of Lent, we need to be reminded that God is near to us, nearer than a breath. We don't have to search for God somewhere. We don't have to go to a specific place at a specific time. God is with you now, and God is with you when you are not here, when you are far. Perhaps during Lent this year, you can practice paying attention to the way that God is already present in your life, even in the little, very ordinary things. Practice making yourself aware of the divine in every nook and cranny of your lives, in the very ordinary, mundane conversations you have with your family, with your friends, with coworkers. Take the opportunity this Lent to look for the ways that God is present, even as we're in the season of preparation and reflection. Because this is good news for us. Our God is not only on the mountaintop. God is not only in spaces where you have felt close to God before. We can go nowhere that God has not been long before us and that God will not be long after us. Our God is present with us always because God is Emmanuel, God with us. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.